You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Tyler Matheson. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu. A big sell-up on the street today as investors grow more cautious about the potential economic impact of that fast-spreading coronavirus. And fears are building about what will happen when China opens for business again next week after being closed for the Lunar New Year holiday. The Dow now wiping out all of its gains for January. That would be the first January loss for the Dow since 2016. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq are narrowly holding on to those gains for the month of January. Let's get more on what's driving today's moves. Seema Modi, who's live at the New York Stock Exchange. Seema, what can you tell us? Dom, the Dow is currently on track for its worst day since October 2nd. We're just off the lows of the day. Interesting enough, we started the day down about around 220 points as a number of Dow components reported disappointing earnings. The sell-off accelerated around 10 a.m. The January PMI numbers came out surprisingly weak. You combine that with elevated fears around the coronavirus. Biggest laggards at this hour, Caterpillar, Chevron, ExxonMobil, reacting to those earnings reports. Among the energy companies that have reported, about one-third have fallen short of expectations this quarter. And there's a look at some of the biggest percentage decliners. Main question, a lot of economists are trying to understand, how does the, the disruption around the coronavirus impact U.S. GDP growth and demand for oil? Back to you, Dom. All right, Seema Modi, thank you very much for that update on the market action so far. So with the major indices now on pace for their second straight week of declines and the Dow looking at its first January loss since 2016, are fears of the coronavirus outbreak driving investors to sell or is there something more just below the surface? For, now, for more now, I'm joined by Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research. Also, Matt Maley, managing director at Miller Tabak and Company as well. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. Perhaps, Matt, we'll start with you. You're the market watcher. You watch these technicals. What does the trading action today tell you about the market sentiment in the market, given what's happening with coronavirus? Well, you know, it's obviously, you know, this coronavirus is, it seems to be, uh, or at least the concerns about it are, are spreading uh, significantly. And you're going into a weekend, so people are like, geez, if this thing gets a lot worse over the weekend, I want to take a few chips off the table before that happens. Uh, plus, we have China opening on Monday, as you mentioned, after it's been closed for over a week. And then, of course, uh, we have uh, uh, the, uh, the Iowa caucus on Monday, and Bernie Sanders is doing really well. And, and if he does, you know, if he wins there, especially if he wins in a big way, uh, there's a lot of different reasons for people to say, hey, we've had an unbelievable move in the market. Uh, why not take a few chips off the table? I mean, let's face it, at the highs, the S&P was up 41 percent and the Nasdaq was up 51 percent uh, at the highs just a few weeks ago. So, so, Jim, this very much comes down to a conversation about whether or not the coronavirus will have an impact on economic activity and thereby markets in, in, in relation. Is there a real cause for concern, given the fact that China is the world's second biggest economy and it seems like their economy is still in lockdown? Yeah, there's a big cause for concern for exactly that reason. SARS is not a valid overlay because the Chinese economy was only 4 percent of world GDP. Today, it's 16 percent of world GDP. This virus has been doubling every three days. So, Matt, I hear you when you say if it gets much worse, but it's going to double by Monday unless they come out and tell us that something has changed. That is going to keep a major cog of the world's supply chain in lockdown. It's going to keep their economic activity at a crawl, and it's going to be felt everywhere. Goldman Sachs is already out saying it's going to knock 0.4 off of our GDP. The Chinese government back on Wednesday 
said it was going to knock a percent and a half off their GDP, and the amount of cases has already doubled since Wednesday. So it is a big deal, and it shouldn't be underestimated. Where, where, where Matt, are we seeing the most impact? We, we heard from SEMA, the energy complex that's driven by some, in some part by microeconomic factors, earnings reports, that sort of thing. Are there hot spots right now, either to the up or downside, that traders need to be paying attention to given the coronavirus concern? Well, I, you know, I think that uh, the whole market, in, in many ways, especially in the tech area, I mean, you have, I mean, Apple Computer, there's no question, they're a great company. Uh, but you look at it on a technical side, uh, earlier this week, it's a weekly RSI reached 90. I mean, uh, that's incredibly overbought. It's only been over, more overbought one other time in the history of the company. Uh, so I, I guess my point is a lot of people are saying, well, geez, the Fed's providing a lot of, you know, they're not QE, QE program, so that will limit the downside. But, I mean, the market doesn't need a reason to go down 3 to 5%. As Jim just said, there is a reason now for the market to go down a little bit. And with the, uh, the impact of algos uh, in the markets today, it could overshoot that very easily. So uh, you, it's not out of the question that we could have a correction. And I think the key thing right now is for investors to have a plan in place uh, in advance so they can take advantage of it uh, if and when the, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. All right. So, Jim, I mean, Matt brings up an interesting point. He opened the door. So I'm going to step through it with you. He mentioned the Fed. The Fed just had a meeting. They seem like they're on hold. It's an election year. It's fair to call them perhaps a huge variable in this mix. How does the Fed or central bank intervention overall play into the coronavirus thesis at this stage? Well, they are a big, they are a big one, and it's one of the reasons that the yield curve has reinverted, that the 10-year yield has fallen below the three-month yield for the first time since last October. Whenever that happens, I've always said that's a signal that the market is initially thinking that the Fed is being too slow in cutting rates. They don't want to cut rates. It's an election year. 1980, 2008, they were forced to move in election years, and they have to be forced. So right now, I'm sure if you ask Fed officials, they're going to say we're on hold. There's no problem. But if we talk about more problems in the global supply chain, they may be forced back to the table sooner than they think. But right now, they're not going there, and that's why the yield curve is inverted, because the market's saying they're going to be behind the curve yet again. All right, traders, keeping a close eye on what's happening with the interest rate dynamic for sure. Jim Bianco, Matt Maley, thank you both very much. We've now got some breaking news. Let's go out to Phil LeBeau, who's got the news on United Airlines. Phil. Hey, Dom, United joining American and Delta, suspending flights between the U.S. and China. So that's really From their hub cities here in the U.S. to the three cities in China that they serve, Shanghai, Beijing, and Chengdu, mainline China, we should say. They're still going to have flights going into Hong Kong. This will start effectively on February 6th. So the last flight from the U.S. over uh, to China will be on February 4th, which is what, next Tuesday? And then they're going to have the final flight from China over here on the 5th. And then starting on the 6th, They will be suspending all of their operations, again, to mainland China. They will continue to have uh, flights between San Francisco and Hong Kong. So now you've got United, Delta, American, all of them basically saying within the next week, and Americans immediately, but within the next week, you will have no service between the U.S. and mainland China. And those are just the U.S. airlines. We know the list is growing for international yeah, airlines. It's over, 31, it's over 31 airlines, Dom, that are now internationally that have cut or curtailed uh, their flights into China. And increasingly, they're moving from just curtailing to outright stopping flights altogether. All right. 
Uh, thank you very much, Phil Lebeau, for that update. We appreciate it. Well, a big jump overnight in the number of confirmed coronavirus cases, which now stands at over 9,900, almost 10,000, including six in the United States. The total number of deaths now at 213, all of them in China at this stage. Yunus Yun is live for us in Beijing with the very latest there. Also with us, Meg Terrell has more on the race to find a vaccine and the drugs here in the United States as well. But Yunus, let's start with you. What do we know now about the numbers and what the government is doing to contain it? Well, Dom, I'm coming to you from the Beijing train station, and people have started slowly coming back to the Chinese capital, preparing to go back to work on Monday after the Lunar New Year holiday officially ends this weekend. Even so, Beijing tonight, the city, issued a directive saying that when people do come back to the Chinese capital, that they should work remotely at least until February 10th. Much is still unknown about this virus. And more and more buildings, not only here in Beijing, but also in other parts of the country, have started to set up more temperature checks and other barricades in order to try to prevent the virus's spread. Uh, masks, as well as other protective gear, are in short supply. In fact, Shanghai, uh, the city, just today launched a quota for masks as of this Sunday, saying that home addresses, each home address is only limited to five masks. Now, all of this, as you could imagine, is having an impact on economic activity. In fact, the transport ministry today put out some numbers saying that for the Lunar New Year holiday, the overall number of trips has dropped by 16.5 percent from last year. And for January 30th, the day when most people had expected to travel to work today, those number of trips dropped by 84 percent. Dom? All right. Of course, we'll be watching those transportation numbers, a big indicator for whether or not the economy will slow down in Beijing and China overall. Thank you very much, Eunice Yoon. Meg, you've also been inside some of the labs of some of these big drug makers over the past couple of days. What can you tell us about the status of the drugs either meant to treat or prevent the spread of the coronavirus. So these companies are working incredibly quickly, and in some, t- in some instances, it almost sounds like science fiction, the kinds of work that they're doing. And we want to give you a glimpse specifically into what's going on at Regeneron, whose labs we visited yesterday. They have a technology where they've genetically engineered mice to have human immune systems. That enables them to create human antibodies by exposing the mice to parts of the virus that they want to fight. Chief Scientific Officer Dr. George Yankopoulos told us how they successfully did this for Ebola. It was very exciting when we got the news that the World Health Organization had tested his Ebola antibody cocktail, and it really worked compared to standard of care. It really it saved lives. It saved people who would otherwise die from this horrific um, Ebola infection. Now, the company is taking the same approach with the novel coronavirus. They're partnered with the government agency BARDA and see the potential to start human testing, Dom, within six months. So, so this is an amazing story now because in many ways the Ebola scare was the most recent example of a huge mobilization of the pharmaceutical industry towards this. Do we get a better sense now whether it's the same kind of effort or even more so because this could be a faster spreading virus 
than Ebola? It's been really remarkable to compare the situation six years ago when that outbreak in West Africa began of Ebola versus now. Then companies were trying, but we didn't hear a lot from them. They weren't extremely forthcoming about their work. Here, we are seeing a dozen companies stepping up immediately, being very forthcoming about their work that they're doing. And it seems that they must be bolstered by the success that they've had uh, in Ebola. Merck got the first Ebola vaccine licensed by the FDA last year. J&J's Ebola vaccine is being used in the field uh, in Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo in the current outbreak right now. As you heard, Regeneron successfully developed an Ebola drug. So did Veer Biotechnology. These companies have had success. They know how quickly they can do it. And so they're talking about it and getting down to work very quickly now. How critical, how important is it for these companies to have a robust partnership or sharing of information with government regulators and health officials like the NIH or the CDC? It's very important, not just for the potential funding sources, which can be even more helpful for small companies that need the funding from BARDA, uh, DARPA, other government organizations, but uh, we heard from Regeneron, that partnership is really helpful for getting to know the right people, understanding who you need to talk to to get things done. Having the partnership with BARDA can connect you uh, within different organizations and public health agencies around the world. Um, So it's very important that everybody's working together. And NIH is also giving guidance to companies. They're working with Moderna on how to select the targets for their vaccines. And so there's so much collaboration going on between government and private industry on this. A huge evolution in communication for sure ever since SARS, MERS, and of course Ebola, and now the coronavirus here. Meg Terrell, thank you very much for that update. Great reporting. Thank you. All right, coming up on the show, with many Chinese cities essentially coming to a screeching halt, the retail sector could see major supply chain disruptions. We are going to look at who could be the biggest impacted by those particular changes. Plus, semiconductor stocks are on pace for their worst performance since August. Will the disruption in China put more pressure on that sector? We'll explore. The exchange is back in just two minutes. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. Stocks selling off right now, and one sector is getting hit particularly hard this month, and that is retail. Check out the XRT. This is one of the ETFs that tracks the industry group. It's poised for its worst month since last August. Coronavirus fears and potential supply chain disruptions are taking a big toll on many of these retailers. With us now on the CNBC Newsline is Brian Nagel, senior analyst over at Oppenheimer. Brian, thank you very much for being here. It seems weird to talk about coronavirus and then throw retail into it, but there are real-world tangible effects of the coronavirus and the economy on retail. How are your views changing because of the developments here? Well, thanks for having me on. You know, look, we're obviously watching the situation just like everyone else right now. Um, you know, as I think about it, and, you know, retail is a very big sector with lots of different kind of companies. And we think about luxury names like Tiffany, which I followed for years. You know, Tiffany's obviously getting purchased by LVMH shortly, so, uh, you know, it's not trading as it normally would. But, look, a company like Tiffany, a large portion of their sales within the United States are done to consumers traveling from overseas, and, and, you know, and a chunk of that are consumers traveling for, from China. So, again, we have to see what happens, but you know, to the extent that coronavirus limits travel of, uh, the traveling uh, habits of shoppers around the world, that could have an impact, at least in the nearer term, upon, upon, um, upon sales to like luxury retailers in the United States. Are you focused specifically, Brian, on the luxury side of things? I, I ask because we, we oftentimes 
talk about companies like Tiffany. We oftentimes talk about LVMH or Caring because they make the high-end stuff that many East Asian customers of the higher end of the income spectrum want. Is it mostly luxury that's going to be affected, in your opinion? Initially. I mean, we, I guess as I, as I step back and say, you know, how should we think about coronavirus and retail broadly? I mean, one is the effect I just, just described, you know, to the extent that it impacts the, the, uh, the consumers that are traveling around the world. You know, the second would be, and this would take a longer time to play out, but if, what, if the coronavirus does lead to slower economic activity in the United States and across the globe, and again, this would take a longer time to weigh out, that, would prop, that, could, that could have a more, a wider impact upon retail broadly. You know, it could obviously affect uh, luxury-type chains, but also others, uh, other type of retailers. Now, the American consumer has been championed and, and cheered over the course of the past several months, maybe even the past year, Brian, as being the driving force behind many of the economic and market gains that we've had here in the U.S. and perhaps even by ripple effect abroad. Does the U.S. consumer then still maintain that kind of lead, that, that leadership role when it comes to being able to power the world economy, despite the fact that coronavirus is in play? Well, look, that's an, that's an interesting question. Um, it, I think we'll all depend upon how severe this gets and how long this lasts. Now, right now, and in fact, I, was, I, put a, I published a note this morning and, and was discussing with our, our clients and my, my sales team here at Oppenheimer, and we talked about, you know, one interesting factor I see happening is with these concerns of coronavirus now percolating or turning more severe, interest rates have dropped significantly. And if you look at the 10-year bond right now, the yield there is you know, back to the lows we saw in 2019. Again, in a very simplistic view, that should be a positive for the U.S. housing market. And retailers that are tied to the U.S. housing market, like Home Depot, like Lowe's, and then to a certain extent, like a company like Williams Sonoma, in that these lower rates could actually help to drive better housing activity. Again, it all depends upon how long this lasts and how severe it gets. All right. Brian Nagel at Oppenheimer, thank you very much for those thoughts on retail, both on the luxury and the home improvement side. We appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up on the show, fears over the virus outbreak sending yields plunging, as you just heard, as investors pile into government bonds. Part of the yield curve inverting again. We'll head live to the floor of the CME for an update there. And with the oil and gas exploration ETF, ticker XOP, having its worst month since at least September 2011, we'll dig into the big name laggards and one bright spot in that energy sector coming up. And a reminder... You can always watch or listen to us live or on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in two minutes. Welcome back to the exchange. Let's get a check on the markets right now. The Dow, the Nasdaq and the S&P, as you can see, they're right now just about near session lows. The Dow down by about 520 points. The S&P off by about 55 and the Nasdaq down by about 124 points all between one and a third to nearly 2% drops. We'll keep an eye on those markets. Yields are also dropping as investors rush into bonds with a 10-year U.S. Treasury note yield on track to post its biggest monthly drop since August. Let's get more on treasuries and currencies with Rick Santelli. He's on the floor of the CME out in Chicago. So, Rick, this is interesting. Yields are falling. People are rushing to the safety of government bonds. Are you watching which part of the yield curve and what does that actually tell you about whether or not this is going to be an important development over the next couple of days? You know, the entire yield curve is all important, Don, but your point is not lost. Maybe a good way to summarize it is right now, two-year note yields, for example, are down six on the day, or seven on the day, and down 17 on the week. 
That is even a bigger move than the longer maturity 10-year note down six on the day, down 16 on the week. The point is, is that the buying is pretty much everywhere on the curve. If you look at it intraday of 10, you can see we've been down as low as 151. We've actually had a bounce in the long end, not to be found on the short end. Look at one week of 10s minus Monday. You can see the way we've fallen off the cliff. Uh, September comp is the best way to look at this. We have taken out uh, the 153, even though we're sitting there from October, what's left is the cycle low at 146. But open the chart up. This is eye-opening. If you go back to July of 2012 and July of 2016, a double bottom at 136. You add in the 146 low we're getting ever closer to, and those areas are going to be guns hot. We want to watch next week as we test these long-term milestones as investors continue to look at treasury buys not only for safe harbor, but also as a hedge against the really nasty trade going on in the equity markets. Look at three-month to 10-year, which you were really referring to, and there it is. It's a negative inversion going on. Three-month deals are higher than 10-month deals, and as I said, with two-year underperforming, we're even seeing tens to twos moving in, and the dollar index, normally a safe harbor, is getting clobbered today, down almost a half a cent. Dom, back to you. Rick, before we let you go, really quickly, which part of the market on the macro side is the most impacted by the concerns we have right now? Will you be watching gold prices, dollar versus yen, those treasury yields? In, in your mind, which is the, the hottest spot right now, given the market dynamic? I think with the entire globe obviously monitoring this spreading of the coronavirus, I think the long maturities and the complexion of the yield curve gives you an instant global look at how much buying is coming in that is at the investor's psyche of just how nervous they are with all the events of the day. All right, Rick Santelli live on the floor of the CME out in Chicago. Thank you very much. We have breaking news right now on President Trump's impeachment trial. Elon Moy has the story. Elon. Down. Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska is a no on calling for additional witnesses in this trial, and that all but assures that Democrats will not have the votes they need in order to get more testimony or more documents in this process. In a statement, Murkowski called the House's investigation rushed and flawed. She said it has become so partisan that she does not believe a fair trial is possible and that continuing this process will not change anything. Now, Dom, even though there will be no witnesses in this trial, that doesn't mean it's going to wrap up tonight. There are growing uh, choruses of senators who say that the final chapter in the trial may not play out until next week. But the trial has just resumed today in the past 15 minutes or so. So we're just going to have to see how all of this plays out this evening. All right. So the drama continues perhaps into next week. Elon Moy live in Washington with those details on the impeachment of President Donald Trump. Thank you very much. Now to Sue Herrera, who's got a CNBC News update. Sue. Indeed, I do, Dom. Thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer says the acquittal of President Trump in his impeachment trial is meaningless with no new evidence and witnesses and will have no value. If my Republican colleagues refuse to even consider witnesses and documents in this trial, this country is headed towards the greatest cover-up since Watergate. If my Republican colleagues refuse to even consider witnesses and documents in the trial, what will the President conclude? 
The first person to enter the 2020 Democratic presidential race has dropped out. Former Maryland Congressman John Delaney announcing this morning that he is ending his campaign. He first entered the race in July of 2017. And Brexit supporters celebrating in central London as the United Kingdom prepares to officially leave the European Union. Most held Union Jacks and signed supporting the move. The UK is set to leave the EU at 11 p.m. London time. You are up to date. That's the news update, Dom. Back to you. All right, Sue Herrera, thank you very much for that news update. Coming up on the exchange, transportation stocks are falling, semis are falling, energy is falling. The list goes on and on. The two names that aren't falling, IBM and Amazon. We'll dive into both of those companies straight ahead. As we head to break, though, here's a look at the biggest losers on the Dow. You've got Dow, Chevron, Exxon, Visa, all down between 35 to 5% at this stage. Welcome back to The Exchange, folks. Lots of sectors on the move today with the Dow and the S&P on pace for their worst week in the last six months. Let's get to all of them or as many as we can. Here with their insights today, Art Hogan, chief market strategist at National Securities, alongside our own Morgan Brennan and our own John Fort. Thank you guys very much for being here. First up, we got to talk about Amazon. Those shares, one of the bright spots in today's trade. You've got shares surging nearly 9% after beating earnings estimates across the board on pace for its best day in more than a year. The move sent Amazon's market cap above that rare $1 trillion mark for the first time since 2018, though it's never actually closed above that threshold. And John, Morgan, we're going to start with you guys. John, perhaps to you, how big of a move is this for Amazon, and can it keep it that way this time instead of just dropping back a low? I don't know if it can keep it that way, but it it was big because of the surprise factor. I mean, these earnings were about two things, I would argue. One is the continued cloud momentum. Two is one-day shipping. We knew that they were doing one-day shipping, but they set the market up for, uh, us like $1.5 billion in costs. It's going to be hard. We're going into investment mode. And then not only did the one-day shipping move drive more revenue, it didn't cost quite as much as everybody expected. So profits turned out to be better. Then at the same time, you got this setup between Microsoft and Amazon. When people see Microsoft doing well on the cloud, they're kind of worried, oh, maybe Amazon's not. Amazon continues to have some pretty decent growth in the cloud at a good margin. And so, you know, when you got that top line growth and profits from Amazon, when you're expecting investment, you get happy. Speaking of the top line, Morgan, one of the things that stood out was just how good and how robust the Prime membership is for this yeah, particular more company. Than 150 Recurring revenue. Members. Every year, they're just going to get this credit card yeah. charged to my bill, and it's going well for them. Yeah, and those services, those subscriptions are very much what helped propel Amazon uh, to these growth numbers as well, right? 30% plus growth year on year. Uh, Margins very much in focus for AWS. The fact that shipping costs, while up 43%, still came in a little better than expected. And I think it's really notable, too, because we've seen same-store sales that have been disappointing at quite a number of the retailers already. It would seem like that one-day shipping means Amazon's starting to take a little more market share. All right. Is Amazon the new market leader? It wasn't back in 2019. How important is Amazon to the market thesis on the bullish side, Art? One of the things we've talked about for a year now in this global economy is how's the consumer doing? How's the U.S. consumer doing? I think there's a pretty good report card on the U.S. consumer. So I think that piece of it's important. The fact that they've grown to 150 million paid subscribers means that that consumer is also very sticky to Amazon. It's very difficult to make a decision to shop somewhere else when you know that you're going to get that free delivery, that free one-day delivery. So I think it just drives business. So I think it's more important to say Amazon is giving us a better report card on the consumer, and that's what we're concerned about right now. All right. 
believe Amazon there, a big move higher for the stock. Next up, you got shares of Caterpillar, guys. Those shares are lower despite a fourth quarter earnings beat. The company missing, though, on revenues. It also issued weaker than expected full year guidance as well. The CEO of Caterpillar saying, quote, we expect global economic uncertainties to pressure sales to users in 2020. Morgan, you are very familiar with this company and many other industrial ones. How big of a deal is this when Kat says things may not be that good in 2020? It's a big deal, right? They're seen as a bellwether, as a barometer for the global industrial economy. Just to put some of these numbers into perspective, machinery sales in the fourth quarter, down 14% in North America, down 16% in Latin America, down 6% in Europe and the Middle East, flat in Asia. Of course, now what happens in Asia, especially given all the coronavirus concerns and everything playing out there. It's not just Caterpillar. Honeywell talked about being cautious this year. 3M, Stanley Black & Decker. I could just go down the list. It's been very common, this type of macroeconomic uncertainty commentary coming out of the industrial CEO. So, Morgan, I just want to halt us for a second here because I want to call viewers' attention to that screen behind us here, which is the Dow down to 555 points. That does represent the session lows right now for the market's overall art. Morgan mentioned all of those reasons why Caterpillar is important. It is a Dow component. So every time I think of cat, I think of the words high watermark. Remember those words sure. a couple of years ago about what happened with the CFO there? How important it, it is Caterpillar as important of a global bellwether as we make it out to be? So important that we just have these two stories together. And I, I will say this. Consumer confidence has never been higher and corporate confidence has never been lower. The gap between those two things is amazing. That manifests in lower CapEx and certainly manifests in, in companies not going out and, and taking on new projects. So that uncertainty by the corporate and, and the industrial world has slowed down industrial companies across the board. What it takes to close that gap is, is you know, is an unknown. There's yeah. another... I would just throw in, it's interesting the, the dislocation here between what's happening in the digital world and what's happening in the physical world, right? Who do you think is, is paying for AWS and Azure sure. and all that stuff? It's companies yeah. buying that stuff. Granted, it's buy the drink, and they don't have to buy a huge piece of equipment to do it. But you look at Caterpillar, you look at Deer, that's also going through a situation where uh, you know, their distributors are working down inventories uh, because the customer is uncertain. It's a very interesting time to have more of a cloud and buy the drink model. All right, so I'm yeah. glad you brought that up because our next topic here is the semiconductors. Speaking of that kind of bridge between tech, the people who spend, the semiconductors are clearly feeling the heat from uncertainty around China. The SMH, that's the ticker of the semiconductor ETF we track often, is now on pace for its worst week since August. And John, (laughs) how important, we talk about Cat Isabel weather, semiconductors have also been a lightning rod when it comes to U.S.-China trade and now the economic activity in China as well. I don't know if we can still read semis the way we used to because of the run they've been on lately. They're they're not quite as stable. I mean, when I looked at today's uh, last night's numbers from Amazon and then Microsoft before, I thought, boy, Intel was being really cautious when they said we're afraid the mega scale cloud players will go through a digestion period in the second half. And that's why we're being cautious in our guide. Maybe they should have been less cautious, given the fact that the pedals to the metal for both of them, it seems like in terms of margins and in terms of revenue, despite the fact that they're investing in Salesforce. So you factor that in, the fact that AMD has got its own story going where console sales mess with their uh, numbers and their guidance. I'm not sure you can draw an overall story from the semis the way you used to. Is it important, Morgan? I mean, I I think about it because there are microeconomic, company-specific, even industry-specific within semiconductors, whether it's memory, DRAM, that sort of thing, whether it's data centers. What exactly stands out to you when it comes to that semiconductor trade right now? Two things. 
I think the first is, despite China phase one trade deal, you still do continue to have this tech decoupling between Chinese telcos and Huawei and U.S. suppliers, something to continue to watch. The second thing is, when you have airlines and you have freight carriers canceling flights in and out of China, that's, those air freight numbers are very closely linked with semi-billings. A uh, little hat tip to Donald Broughton for, for that data point right there. But that's going to be something to watch. It's going to be interesting to see how all these coronavirus concerns play out in terms of semi-inventory. It's like you guys are, are you're, you're teeing me up perfectly because we're going to take we're going to go right from there to what's happening with transportation stocks. All right. Yep. Because they're taking a big hit following the American Airlines release that we just heard. Delta, United, all temporarily canceling Chinese flights to the mainland over there amid this coronavirus outbreak. The Dow Transportation Index is falling through its 200-day or longer-term moving average. And Art, maybe we'll start with you, despite I know that Morgan has a lot of expertise in transports. <laughs> this market dynamic is important because oftentimes traders look towards transportation stocks and the industry as another one of those, get it, theme, global bellwethers. Right. I think there's, there's never been a longer-term uh, barometer for global economic activity than transports. It's just not usually right. Right now, the transports are, are sending us a message that we're going to the global recession. That's probably not correct, but it's also a group that overcorrects all the time. Dow theory would tell us that if the Dow Jones Industrial Average made a new high, the Dow transports would need to make a new high to confirm that. That hasn't held true for, for at least 10 years necessarily, so I just think that's a bit broken. The transports have their own issue right now, obviously tied to, to nobody traveling to China for the next, you know, pick the period of time, and that's going to slow things down. So that yeah. means, Morgan, with the coronavirus scare, with airlines a huge focus, it's are not there just other airlines? Right. It's also the freight carriers, it's the tankers. Baltic dry index, and I realize it doesn't carry the weight. It once did, but it has absolutely cratered if you look at those rates as well because it's all those commodities, those dry goods that are moving back and forth that everybody's concerned are now going to not be in demand in China right now if people aren't getting back to work in factories. All of those are cratering right now. Of course, Morgan would bring Kate Max and Panamax vessels into this conversation. <laughs> John, when it comes to that act- activity, what part of the market structure do you think in your mind would most represent maybe either a turn for the better or worse when it comes to the overall market? Well, you know, I, I don't know. I think the traditional bellwethers, as we said before, aren't working. I think you've you got to look also at the digital economy and see what it's doing. I mean, it's not like people in China have stopped doing everything. They're probably at home on screens, on Watching devices. streaming videos. Right. Yep. I mean, yeah. Somebody's going to benefit from that. Plus, I mean, the real uncertainty here is we don't know how long this coronavirus outbreak is going to last. We don't know when the numbers taper off. You heard some people in China at first concerned that the government didn't have its arms around this. Now you got the WHO saying China's doing a pretty good job. I don't think we're going to get a really good sense on balance of how this is going for another couple of weeks based on what the experts are saying. And, you know, then we'll see. All right. Great market discussion. We covered a lot of ground. Art Hogan, National Securities. Thank you very much. Our very own Morgan Brennan and John Fort. You're going to stick around because we got a big conversation about that digital economy coming up later on in the show. Thanks, guys. Well, the Dow is erasing all of its gains for the month of January. Is this the start of something bigger? A top technician joins us with the key levels you want to watch. That's coming up next. And as we head to break, take a look at the Home Builders ETF. This ticker ITB falling more than 2% today, but still up 7% just for the month of January. Home Builders, a very big focus. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. A steady drip of negative headlines over the past week causing markets to slump on the final trading day of this month. 
Let's take a closer look at the technical side of this sell-off. Joining us now is Fairlead Strategies founder and managing partner Katie Stockton. Katie, thank you very much for being here. This is a good time. Every time is a good time to have a technician on because you use history as a basis. Will things repeat themselves? What is it about this market move that is similar to ones that you've seen in the past? And what does that mean? Are we due for more downside? Well, first, I would emphasize that the uptrend is very much intact for the major indices. Pullbacks do tend to be very sort of fast and furious. And in fact, when they are that way, they tend to be short-lived and also counter-trend. So this, to me, is a reaction to what was an overbought sentiment reading. We've had a few of those over the past year or so, and they're often worked off very quickly, meaning weeks, not months. And I think that will be the case this time around as well. We did have a sentiment downturn in one of our preferred gauges on January 22nd. This does tend to give way to a pullback, which I think is, of course, underway here still. I do still think there's downside risk. We haven't quite seen that sentiment reading worked off entirely, meaning a sort of a counter trend buy signal or a contrarian reading to suggest that fear is high enough to really uh, give us a market low yet. Katie, you, you, you make a living giving your clients targets. You tell them where we think it's going to go. So, so where is that downside target? Where should people start think? thinking about putting that shopping list to work or going long stocks if they've been on the sidelines or taking profits in this move? Well, there's no magic number at which I would say that's your entry point, but we can use support levels as gauges of downside risk. They can be very reliable at times, but we want to use them in conjunction with indicators that help us understand whether we're at those sentiment extremes, at those breath extremes, and I would argue we're not quite there yet. So the initial support that I'm looking at for the S&P 500 is right around 3150. It's based on a couple of technical factors that to me would be very reasonable as a stopping point for the pullback. After today's action, it's not too far, far below. And then secondary support, which would to me be a worst case scenario, is about 6% below current levels in the 30-30 area. That was a breakout point from late 2019. I don't think it's going to get that bad based on the relief that we've already seen from the overbought conditions, but we'll really wait for that upturn in momentum, regardless of the level for the S&P 500, before recommending getting back in. All right. One of the places you also watch closely is the sentiment of the marketplace. Are there any telltale signs right now that the market is either in this state of euphoria or in this state of total shock with what's going on? I think it's safe to say that the euphoria has been worked off here. Of course, the the virus has really done that effectively, unfortunately. And yet we don't have that fear in the marketplace yet. We like to enhance the sentiment readings with breath. We're looking at, in particular, the percentage of stocks in the S&P 500 that are oversold. And they're running about one-third of the S&P 500 right now. And that's not quite enough to suggest we have that low in place yet. It tends to peak around 50% of the S&P 500. So not too much more downside if, indeed, we're in the same kind of pullback mode that we saw about three times last year. All right. Katie Stockton with some target levels to watch there. Thank you very much for those insights. We appreciate it. All right. Well, the oil and gas ETF is down more than 19 percent on pace for its worst month since September of 2011. We'll dig into the names and get the one bright spot in that sector that is coming out next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. We are tracking this market sell-off and looking at energy right now. That sector down more than 10% over the course of the month and in bear market territory, down 20% from its 52-week high that we saw back in April of last year. Now, leading the declines today, you've got shares of Philips 66, also Valero Energy, as well as Dow Components, ExxonMobil, and Chevron. Both of those names sliding to new 52-week lows in today's trade. And the ETF tracking the oil and gas exploration and production industry, the ticker XOP, is down nearly 20% for this month. But it's not all doom and gloom out there. you got shares of Marathon Petroleum up slightly today after a report that the company is exploring a sale of its gas station arm, which is Speedway. Marathon has previously said the unit could be worth between $15 and $18 billion. Well, shares of IBM falling nearly 23% since Ginny Rometty took the helm as CEO of IBM. And according to one tech expert, not even Jesus can resurrect Big Blue now. That's a big statement. We'll ask him. He explains why, and we'll figure it out and challenge him. Welcome back. While the tech sector is falling along with the broader markets, the Nasdaq is holding up better than the other indexes. The sector is the second best performing one in the S&P so far this month, up 4%. Could tech be the saving grace for investors or the best bet right now? Joining us is Paul Meeks, Portfolio Manager at Independent Solutions Wealth Management. Also, CNBC's very own John Fort rejoins us as well. And, And perhaps, Paul, we'll start with you. Are you worried at all? Tech was a leadership person, sector, anything in the markets last year, is it due for a bit of a steeper fall if the markets do fall more steeply themselves? I think it is, because if you take a look at the tech sector within the S&P 500 last year, and that's measured by the XLK uh, Spider ETF, you know, that ETF was up 50% in a year in which the S&P was up 30 in a uh, era in which stocks typically do about 10% per year. So clearly overbought. And tech stocks are cyclical, particularly the hardware and semiconductor-oriented tech stocks. So sure, there should be some hell to pay. But I feel good enough about the long-term fundamentals that when we have a correction, and I don't think it's going to be as steep as the correction we saw in the NASDAQ in the fourth quarter of 18, maybe something to the tune of 5 to 10%, I will buy with both hands when that happens. Wow, that's a, big, that's a big statement. Buy with both hands. So, John, when you cover the tech sector, you're obviously looking at everything from computer chips to, to data centers to web services to everything else. Has there been a place over the course of the past 12 months that's really stood out in your mind as being a place that might be, in some ways, a little bit more resilient to a downturn in the overall market? So far, big, mega-scale tech has been pretty darn resilient. I mean, this earnings season for Apple, for uh, Intel, for Amazon just last night, Microsoft, uh, I think has performed very much up to expectations. Even Facebook, which is kind of on the lower side uh, as far as how they performed in earnings, still, at least so far today, trading above 200 bucks a share, which is, isn't bad considering where we've been over the past six months. So I think the scale players, the ones who uh, have sort of driven the S&P throughout 2019, still doing pretty darn well. And uh, given all the uncertainty and volatility around the other names, hard to draw conclusions. All right. So, Paul, mega cap technology, John, brings up a very big driver of things. Two companies in particular, Microsoft and IBM, very much a focus over the last week. One year record highs in Microsoft, one that's trying to find its way in IBM. Is IBM this generation's Microsoft? Can it turn things around? 
Wow, that'll be a tall order because a lot of people don't realize, and maybe it's counterintuitive, that just because you are a dominant tech player in the era of big iron or even the personal computer era, as we morphed into cloud, mobile, net, you know, why would you expect a company from the first era to be as good or even a player or even relevant in the second era? And one of the things that Microsoft has done since 14 under Satya Nadella is pivot and embrace the cloud, and it's been a home run. That is the playbook that the new CEO of IBM should copy, but, man, it's going to be a tough uh, road to hoe because IBM is in a much worse shape from the get-go. All right, John, the last word to you here. Does IBM have a shot at becoming Absolutely. a Microsoft story? Let's not forget how much people hated Apple in 1996. Sure. Or how much people hated Microsoft 10 years ago. AMD? That AMD, sure. But those are uh, previous powers that people thought nothing could fix uh, and, and something could. Everything's not wrong at IBM. And I think it takes a distinguishing investor, takes research to know what is potentially wrong, but what do you like? You've got to have your own theory about these companies. You can't rely on the idea that everything's wrong. Uh, Arvin's got his work cut out for him, for sure, not just telling the story, but also uh, isolating certain businesses, and we'll see what he does structure-wise. All right, John Fort, very much, thank you very much for those thoughts. And Paul Meeks, always great to get your insights on technology as well. We appreciate it. Well, that thank does you. it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.